We are now living in the future. It is the year 2020, and Kingdom Cast's podcast is back on the air. We hope you all had wonderful holiday season. We're going to jump right into it this week. We've got some surprise hits and some very disappointing misses. 2020 starts off with a bang as the X-Men goes back to its roots and addresses societal issues. Batman gets the first week of the year off to a great start in Detective, and it's an outstanding surreal comic finds its way to us in the forum of the Olympian. I thought it was Olympia. An outstanding surreal comic finds its way to us in the forum of Olympia. I could move wrong. It doesn't matter. I just did it both ways. Okay. That'll work. <laughs> what happened after the Millennium Falcon left Cloud City and Bespin? Well, Star Wars number one by Charles Soule answers that question, and the answer is surprising. Also, in the pages of Lois Lane, we find out that Renee Montoya has never heard of the Tinder app. Your buddy Albert survived the holidays, so let's just jump right in and get to it. Welcome back to Kingdom Casts, Kingdom Casts 2020. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. New year, new you. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> what awesome thing did you do to ring in the new year? Drunk sweet tea and ate pizza rolls. We prepared our traditional family dinner New Year's night while trying to assure the dogs that what they were hearing was just fireworks and not thunder. There was no thunderstorm going on. So that that was just overly exciting. Oh, I'll tell you something else we did. <laughs> this is how exciting my wife and I are. We were <laughs> we got rid of everything except Spectrum Internet access. Yeah. We got rid of everything. We got rid of AT&T Dish, AT&T Internet access, everything and we've got a backup for Spectrum. What we do now is we stream everything through Apple TV on our television sets, right? Yeah. And I'm here to tell you, man, if anybody's listening to this, and this is just set up to what we actually did last night, but if anybody's listening to this, sit down and do the math on how much whatever you're paying for your cable or your dish or whatever is costing you a year, and then look at getting Spectrum's 8G internet service and uh, run the numbers against, say, pay streaming for everything like Disney Plus, Netflix, Hulu, CBS, All Access, and upcoming HBO Action. Run the numbers and see if you don't come out better. We come out $4,000 better a year. And that's with everything I just said. And we haven't even signed up for CBS All Access or HBO Max yet. Because, well, you can't on HBO Max. We're waiting for Picard to start on CBS All Access. I was shocked and ashamed at how much we had been wasting on that. We're much more content with our setup and our viewing habits and such. But this also leads to a major change in viewing habits. So we have gotten to where we watch a lot of YouTube. <laughs> It's all, you can specify what you want on YouTube. Everybody's familiar with YouTube and how it works. And we watch a lot of Disney theme park stuff. And there's this one, and it's called, I started to call it Defunct Land. There's this one really good YouTube channel. It's called Defunct Land. And it's about past park attractions and past theme parks that no longer exist. And there's another one that's almost like it and just as good, and it's called Yesteryear. And we were watching Yesteryear, and it was going over three movie-themed theme parks 
that never worked out, that do not, that no longer exist, or that just never got off the drawing board. Well, Albert, why don't you take a guess? Movie-themed theme parks that people with lots of money thought would be a good idea and attempted to make happen, but didn't take now, take a guess. This, now, is it hooked to Disney, or is it just no, theme no, no, parks no? In any 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 movie-themed theme park? Take take any movie and decide. Hey, you know what? That'd be a good theme park. What would you pick? Give me your top three choices in that. We're just talking movies, right? Yeah, movie theme theme parks. Uh, Predator Land. <laughs> Terminator Future World. Predator has in the alien, not like Jeffrey Epstein or Weinstein, right? No, not. <laughs> okay. Not Predator Kingdom or nothing Predator, like that. Predator World. <laughs> See, uh, third, uh, God, I don't know. Was there like a Back to the Future World or something? Well, okay. Now, first off, to be fair, Terminator and Back to the Future used to have major rides. See, major, that's the like, thing. I was I was trying to think of them. Not like they're all the stuff I can think of is, pro, is owned by somebody. So I don't I don't know. That, that's it. Well, okay. One of the ones in this yesteryear YouTube video, and I recommend you go out and look it up. It's a lot of fun, even if you're not into theme parks all that much. It's just interesting. But one of the ones I'll give you an example is Lord of the Rings, Hobbiton in New Zealand where they built the set, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, they turned it into a little Hobbiton and people pay to go in it and go through it. So, and there's little festivals and Hobbit food served to you by supposed Hobbit. When you when you go to New Zealand, you can visit it. That, that's one of the ones that worked out. That's the only one I can remember aside from the one that I laughed for about an hour and a half over to the point that my wife had to finally tell me, shut up. <laughs> Albert, not one time. And not one multimillionaire, but two separate times in recent history and two different sets of multimillionaire and then one billionaire who approved the whole plan thought it'd be a great idea to build a Gone with the Wind theme park just outside of Atlanta. <laughs> so Ted Turner had to have been one of them. Ted Turner is the billionaire that said right during the last attempt in the 90s, yeah, hell, go ahead, do it. Who was the other one? Well, I know that we even ever got a name, but they basically bought everything that was left from the set of Gone with the Wind, including Terra. And when I say Terra, including the the plantation. And they broke it down and they stored it all in these gigantic barns. The Atlanta Journal and Constitution has reported on these two separate attempts two times. It's all a matter of public record that in the latest time, I think was in the 90s, they were going to build Gone with the Wind World or what have you and recreate the sets and everything. What? <laughs> I've heard of short-sightedness before. <laughs> I mean, I could understand like if you took like some old plantation home and made a and made like a museum with a gift shop attached to it at most. But how does that work? <laughs> well, I don't know what they were planning on doing, but here are my ideas for the Gone with the Wind Park. First off, my wife suggested that they serve raw turnips with dirt on them at every meal. <laughs> <sighs> Secondly, we were like dividing it up. You know how Disney World has Future World, Frontierland, Fantasyland? <laughs> You'd have Terra, Atlanta. What was what were some of the other things? The every day at six p.m., all the attendants of the theme park are gathered together in the public square to hear the reading of all the dead at Gettysburg. 
I mean, how is any of this a good idea? Ted Turner just needs to let that stuff go. Well, he was, they just went to him for permission. And apparently that second time he thought, oh yeah, hell yeah. Cause you know what kids love? Kids love the civil war. <laughs> I did a little research and it, it turns out that Olivia de Havilland, you know, John, John Wilkes first cousin whom he married, Melanie, who became Mel- Melanie Hamilton Wilkes. She's still alive. She's 102 years old. Jesus. (laughs) So there's your meet and greet. And also, ooh, 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 ooh. Hey, dads, rather than go help bandage the Civil War wounded (laughs) or dig raw turnips with the wife and kids, why don't you come on down to Belle's whorehouse? (laughs) You remember Belle? You remember, like, one of the Mechweer guys was really in the reenactments of the Civil War? And he said, like, on Sunday, the South had to win because that's when the bigger crowd would show up. <laughs> Remembering the Mech Warrior guys that would come in and play Mech Warrior? Yeah, I don't doubt that one of them was in Civil War. <laughs> On Sunday, the South had to win to draw Because that's when the bigger crowd would show up. The, the North would win on Saturday or something, and the, the South would win on Sunday. Because, you know, that's historically accurate right there. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, kids, church is out. Let's go watch the South win. Can you even see this had to this had there had to be a meeting at some point where one of the guy or the guys behind it go to other investors or approach Ted Turner. They had to have approached Ted Turner because he signed off on the second one and go, Look, we bought everything that remains from the Gone with the Wind set, and we are set up to do a theme park, and not one of them. Not one of these people, not one of these billionaire or millionaires at this meeting stopped to ask, what do you guys think the demographic's going to be in 10 to 20 years for a theme park that (laughs) is centered on the Civil War and the burning of Atlanta? (laughs) Not one of them. (laughs) I'm kind of heartbroken it didn't get as far as bells. (laughs) You want to talk about a record setting theme park, they would garner more lawsuits in the first 24 hours of operation than Six Flags does in a month. (laughs) Remember like out west, they had that big creationist theme park thing. Wasn't that the PTL thing? No, it was like they... Someone built like a huge ark. Really? And oddly, and oddly, like if you look at pictures of it, that boat is quite impressive. Like they built a huge ass wooden boat in the middle of nowhere. And then they had like displays of people petting dinosaurs and stuff like that or something. <laughs> I've often thought that if you had a good humor about it, that would be a wonderful theme restaurant like the Rainforest. You yeah. Know, have you ever been like, in a be sort of neat. Yeah. 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 Okay. When I was in fifth grade, my parents wanted a trip to Disney World for selling John Deere lawnmowers. And... Well, so you've been to Rainforest and you understand. Yeah. I mean, that would be a good idea for a theme restaurant. You know, and yeah, I'm not... it's sort of a neat thing. You just have, you know, animals everywhere and people dressed up wearing sandals. Yeah. Your waiters and waitresses dressed up like the cast from. Ten Commandments. Yes, I know. Noah was not around during the Ten Commandments, but I'm I'm talking for costuming purposes, people. <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought that would be pretty good. I mean, we don't have to pitch anything. We don't <laughs> humans petting dinosaurs. Did the dinosaurs have feathers? 
No, they don't. Uh, they didn't believe in that bullshit. Language edited for your protection. But the dinosaur. <laughs> okay, so humans petting dinosaurs you'll buy, but dinosaurs having feathers you're not going to buy. Hey man, if it ain't in Jurassic Park, I ain't, I ain't buying it. <laughs> well, that was my little "What did you do over winter vacation?" story. <laughs> you too can watch YouTube and. <laughs> I just couldn't get over that. I mean, what? For me personally, there'd be no draw to anything like that aside from Bell's Whorehouse and the possibility that Coca-Cola had still had the same amount of cocaine in it they were putting in <laughs> So aside from those two things, <laughs> let's talk... <laughs> Let's let's switch the conversation from Civil War and Gone with the Wind to actual comic book news. We do still have our Star Wars special coming up. We've got a number of questions about some technical aspects in Star Wars and this about the film, that about the film, and what does Albert think? Oh, you're going to get to hear what Albert, Sandra, and I think, and also Allison and Josh, too. So we'll be doing that and having that up for you in the next week or so. But let's jump right into some comic book stuff. Disney, you're going to have four people against me on that star wars review no 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 there's going to be two sections of it there's going to be one that goes where you and sandra air your opinions and we discuss opinions and then there's going to be one where josh Allie, and i answer technical questions oh okay yeah like how does the lightsaber work this uh, that sort of thing well more interesting than how does lightsaber work the force like, that's how yeah. it works yeah it's a little more involved in that but yeah just real briefly, the Mandalorian came to a close, and oh dear God, that was a hell of an ending. Did you you've seen it, right? Yeah, that was a hell of an ending. Oh, uh, we can do when we do the Star Wars thing. We can do that first for a few minutes. Yeah, we're oh we're going to go into the Mandalorian yeah. first. And John Favreau immediately tweeted shortly thereafter a picture of a maquette of a Gamorian and the news that Mandalorian will return toward the end of 2020 for season two. Then shortly after that, Disney made the announcement that they've moved the WandaVision, Marvel Studios' WandaVision release date, into 2020. So we should be getting WandaVision in the final quarter of this year. And they released some art, and the art is very interesting looking. Have you seen that? No. The art... Or at least I don't think I have. Well, the art looks like a Dick Van Dyke, I Love Lucy-ish sitcom living room setting with... Vision in his human form and Wanda sitting on the couch dressed like they're from the 1950s, very 1950s-esque. Do they TV sleep setting. in separate beds? Well, I don't know that. Half of the house is in black, half of the ad is in black and white, the other half is in color, and the television is glowing red, the same red that's outlined the logo for WandaVision. It's projecting a shadow of them, both on the color side and on the shadow. If you look at Wanda's shadow, you can tell her traditional Scarlet Witch headgear is in the shadow. And on Visions, there's a dot in the middle of the shadow representing where the Mind Stone used to be. This is going to be some weird, wild stuff. It directly ties into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So we'll be getting two Marvel Studios seri uh, series coming up on D23 this year. WandaVision and the, I started to say the Falcon and the Snowman, but it's uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. <laughs> I wasn't too far off. Falcon Snowman. And Snowman. Yeah, there was, what was that? Falcon and the Snowman. Wasn't that a movie? I don't know. 
Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So WandaVision has been moved up to 2020 by Disney+. Plus. Aren't you excited, Albert? I've already canceled my Disney+. Disney Plus. <laughs> I'll, be getting, I'll be re-signing up for Netflix come Monday. <laughs> Why? Then, I'll cancel, then I'll cancel that and go to something else for after a while. How are you going to watch Picard? How are you going Illegally. to watch Picard? Illegally. <laughs> like everybody else, I'd hope. I tell you what, why don't make I just pay, make me pay twenty dollars a month to watch Picard? <laughs> Rather than Albert do it illegally, kids, I'm just going to give him one of my passcodes to legally use. You can't do on. that either. That's against the no, rules. No, you're allowed three sign-ins. Okay, you say yeah. so. No, you you are. You're allowed three sign-ins. So that's they why anything else on that service for flip. CBS all access to Twilight Zone. I've seen a couple of episodes of the Twilight Zone, and I like it a lot. I haven't seen that illegally. <laughs> Ignore him. He he doesn't really watch things illegally. <laughs> uh, did you hear the Joker news? What about Joker? Uh, the Joker movie news. What about it? <laughs> well, just as I believe we have both said on here a couple of times, they're moving toward a status for the sequel to Joaquin and Todd Phillip, Todd Phillip being the director's movie, The Joker. Phillips is very open to the idea, of course, but he hasn't talked to Joaquin at all. One of the lines that Todd Phillips uttered was, when a movie does $1 billion and costs $60 million to make, of course it's going to come up. So he, he won't, But he wants the thematic resonance to continue in it. In other words, he would like two dump trucks full of money from Warner Brothers to back up to his front yard and shake it out. Maybe two for Phoenix. So I, I think it's pretty good. Even though we haven't heard anything from Joaquin Phoenix, we're going to get a sequel to that. Oh, I can guarantee it. I mean, first we had that story that he discounted that they were going to give him another villain movie to do as well as the second Joker. It's usually what, it, yeah, that's, that's usually the thing. Like, hey, I'll do your sequel which yeah. is guaranteed X amount of dollars if you let me do this other movie. They're like, okay. Sandra said Catwoman, and it's pretty obvious that that would be it, even though you don't want it, and I don't necessarily want that, but it is kind of obvious. I don't know what other Gotham villain he'd use, but I'm sure he would shock and surprise us all. So we're likely to get a Joker sequel, but nobody has talked to Joaquin Phoenix about it yet. All right, and other news... I'm not, let's not even review this comic book that I'm about to talk about. Let's just get this out of the way right now because it's tied to this news story. The comic book from Marvel, they put out last week, released it on Christmas Day, Incoming. It had a $9.99 price tag on it. Did you read that? Unfortunately. The whole thing was hyping up and in a very ham-fisted, sloppy way, trying to connect Marvel Comics 1000 to the present-day superheroes by using the masked, uh, the Infinity Mask. What, what's his name? Infinity Mask? No, I don't. It's something like that. So yeah, it's something, something cornball like that. But they're connecting him into this, and it sets off a sequence of events in this one shot, incoming number one, that very, uh, again, I use the word ham, the words ham-fisted and sloppily all throughout this book. 
tying all the superheroes into each other so we can set up another Kree slash scroll alien invasion well, of Earth. At some point, like a third of the way through the book, they don't even tie into each other anymore. It just they just stop doing that. They just start jumping around. Yeah. And then at the end of the book they, they go back to it and then like, hey, it's a empire. The end. You and I have talked about this several times before, and it's always Marvel that seems to do this. I cannot think of DC doing $10 event books and putting them out like this. Marvel needs to stop this. If they want to do a $10 event book, they need to do it. But since it's an advertisement, it just needs to be free. I think they did this about two weeks ago with Star but, Wars. Or, or, you know, like if since it's a double page, you know, some big thick book, just do it normal price. Well, do like, it. Hey, here's pro- the, here's the one, one or two. You know, it's Christmas week, so they're only putting out a couple of books. So here, like, hey, here's this big fat book for four bucks that's, that sets stuff up for next year. Here you go. I don't like paying for their advertising. The art, it's done by various writers and various artists. The art in it across the board comes out very nicely but the writing each segment if they each segment was contained to itself it might be okay but they're trying to interconnect everything and it just doesn't work and like you said at the end empire here we go here's here's the surprise this character is a bad guy and has been all along and you never suspected it and now we're getting ready for another Kree scroll invasion which oh my god we haven't seen since secret what was it invasion secret invasion yeah secret invasion since we that we haven't seen since secret invasion look here's the twist it's going to be the crees and the scrolls working together well yeah they did that in the late 90s too in a very god-awful storyline where they decided they were going to make earth their prison for all the intergalactic bad guys that they caught and just drop them on earth i i can't even remember the name of it it was a bad bad was it idea. Called like maximum something yeah something it was bad it was a bad idea you may have already bought it by the time you're hearing about this but if you haven't there's really no need to buy this book yeah that's that's ten dollars you can spend on good books out there don't bother buying this advertisement for upcoming comics because i promise you that there's nothing in this book that you're not going to find elsewhere in these upcoming series. And I got to tell you, I'm very lukewarm about the whole Kree scroll. I'm as excited for the Kree scroll invasion in Marvel as I am about Apex Lex and the Batman who laughs at DC. I've got to wonder where these ideas are coming from. I know. Who, who knows? No one. I don't think anybody cares anymore. I know the bottom line is money, money, money. But I, I really think you're turning off more people. I think you have better avenues for better avenues for revenue than these type things. I just can't get excited over either of them. It puts me off when you pay $10 for an advertisement. An advertisement, Albert. If I pay $10 for a comic, you better have Alex Rossard in it. <laughs> I didn't see Alex Rossard in this. <laughs> So you're in agreement with me on that incoming number one. It was it was not a good read. No, it just like it almost starts out okay. Then it's just then it just stops and you just get random scenes that don't tie in together. Then at the end of it, it's like oh well, here's this one scroll and here's this one Kree guy and that's sort of that. The Masked Rider is the character and he has the Infinity Mask. And when it started out, 
I was mildly interested. Well, he's an interesting character. It's a, you know, it's a yeah. good design and everything. They just don't they don't do anything with it. By the time that Jessica Jones had to go contact and interrogate Captain Marvel over a murder mystery because Daredevil hired I it that's how convoluted it gets. In the first 6 pages of it, the masked rider passes the duties and responsibilities of a closed door murder mystery on one individual over to Daredevil, who happened to be across on top of another building across the alley, fighting slash training with Electra. Daredevil, in turn, rather than investigating this, calls Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones starts investigating it, and immediately the first person she has to question about this is Captain Marvel. That was a stretch and a half. That's just really yeah. strange. I mean, not worth the $9. Not worth the $9 at all. Now, I'm trying to think. Did we have anything else going on? Have we heard anything interesting over the holidays? No, it's been fairly quiet. I guess that's good. So those are the most relevant news stories I've come across. All right, well, let's get right to it. You want to talk about some comic books? Yep, yep. Well, I tell you what, let's start off with your pick of the week, shall we? Yeah. All right, Image Comics, Olympia number two. We talked about Olympia number one. The writers on it are Kurt Pyers and Tony Pyers. The artist on it is Alex Diotto. Man, they are heavily influenced by Stan and Jack, and they openly admit to this, which is nice. I mean, they make no bones about it that they are ripping off the design of the new gods and Thor and Asgard for the ideas and concepts in this comic, which would normally be a turnoff for me, because if I want that, I can go read new gods and Thor comics by Stan and Jack and see the original and the the really well done artwork, but it's what they're doing with this. This is surreal, even for most comic books. Yeah, it's very well done. Like if, like if it was just, yeah, if it was just that, it wouldn't be much to it. But they're like it's very meta and very self aware in what it is. It's a very very well done comic. Very well done and and a very interesting turn. Basically, the hero has fallen out of his own comic and into reality. A fan of the comic book has found him and is trying to help him find his way back. Issue number two takes it a little bit further than that when you get to the last page. I consider this a must-read. This is some grade-A stuff coming out from these two individuals that just now appeared on the comic book scene. They have a wonderful, brilliant idea in this. I heavily recommend Olympia number one and number two. The artwork on it, I'm just going to say it, the artwork is weak, but the artwork is not distracting. I mean, it's got sort of that indie comic sort of like, hey, we're trying to do Kirby, but we really can't do Kirby feel to it. Yeah. But it, but it's fine. It works. Yeah, it works. It's not, it's not distracting or anything. It's just, it's just sort of, it does its job. Yeah. No, it does. I give the writing a five, the art a four, and the overall package a five. So you're at 4.9 with it. I gave the writing a five, the art a three, and the dynamic a five. My score was 4.5. I'm safe in saying we both believe this is worth your money, right? Yeah, easily. Yeah. This is something, and there's a little bit of a heartbreaking real story going on about the uh, writers on the book, too, that they cover in the back of issue number one. Pick this book up. This is a very fresh, very good idea, and these two, the Pyres, are doing a wonderful job of translating this story. Really, I'm looking forward to seeing more from them in the future. Well, let's move on from Image Comics to IDW Comics. I'm going to point this out. January is a five-Wednesday month. 
they're going to be stretched pretty thin for a couple of Wednesdays here. You know, we're focusing in on primarily the number ones and the notable number twos and threes that come out. But this week, there wasn't a ton from anybody except for Marvel. Marvel just hand over fist put everything out this week, whereas I feel DC did that the week before Christmas. Yeah, there wasn't too much to read from anyone but Marvel. IDW Comics had an interesting little comic come out by writer Ryan Ferrer and artist George Combati. I can sell you a body, number one. Albert, what did you think? It seemed okay, but at no point in time reading this book could I ever, I, I couldn't get over the way the first panel looked. The first Ryan, panel, the, first the panel opening look? of the first page of the first panel, the main character is talking to a hot dog vendor. Yeah. Now, it seems like they're just sort of right close to each other, not far off. But in the art, they're across this huge, like, multi-lane road of traffic. Oh, and they're like yeah. 50 yards away. And every time I read that panel, I kept reading. It took me like five minutes to get off that one panel because I kept reading it. And it kept messing. Like, I could not process the choice of doing that panel right, like that. And it messed me up the whole comic. Yeah, I remember that. I had problems with that, too. And then I just went, okay, whatever, you screwed up, and uh, moved on. But I had forgotten it by the time I got to the end of it. I could not get over that first panel of the whole book. Ooh. Well, that means there's going to be a lot of people out there that have the exact same problem with that first panel. While I see exactly what you were talking about in the first panel, I'd completely forgotten it and went through the rest of the book. Well, by the time we started the podcast, I couldn't even remember what the first panel was. But you're exactly right. I remember he was on one side of the street, almost a block away from the hot dog vendor, holding a conversation with him. And then the next panel, they're right on top of each other. I don't I don't know. My It'll assumption, keep me up tonight, yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, my assumption was they made a mistake, and they moved on, that the layout wasn't properly described or something along those lines, but I didn't remember it at this point. But you bringing it up like that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people that do have that problem with that first panel. And there's a lot of people that if they're browsing it in their comic book store and see that first panel, that's enough to make you put it down. Now, the rest of the story I thought was clever. I thought had a different angle to it. And it, it was kind of humorous. The plot is he's apparently some washed up television personality psychic, but he's actually a real psychic. He can actually talk to dead people. And apparently he can do reverse exorcisms where he allows dead people to jump in bodies. So that's the plot. He owes the mob a bunch of money and they want him to, one of the mob guys, like, hey, you got to put my dad in the body. He's having trouble bringing the dad back from the other side, and so now the mafia has threatened his life. He's got 48 hours to correct it. We won't give away the twist or anything in it. I thought that was clever. It was different. It was funny. There was a good, good humor running through the book. It wasn't anything that jumped up and down and screamed, buy me, buy me, buy me. I gave it threes across the board, but yeah, if you can't get past the first panel on it, like Albert, yeah. I can and see I gave, like, I gave the writing a three, the art of one, and the, I guess the dynamic of two. I didn't, like the idea of the basic idea of the book's pretty good, but the last page, they throw that little extra thing in the book, and I didn't like that at all. It's one of these things where we don't completely disagree on it, but you've given it a way lower score. You, uh, you're at, tell me again, what was the writing, art, and dynamic for you? A three, a one, and a two. Yeah, so you gave the book a score of two. You don't think it's worth their money. I'm come see, come saw on this. I, I gave it a three across the board. I thought it was at least clever, different, and had a humor to it. But there was nothing about it that 
overly made it stand out or would make me want to say to you, you have to buy this like we do with Olympia number two. That's from IDW. But yeah, I'd forgotten about that first panel. And that's a real killer to a lot of people. If they don't, if they don't get it, I recall a situation in Green Lantern, almost God had to be 16 or so years ago where they're telling the typical Green Lantern story and suddenly, without any segue whatsoever, you turn the page and then you're reading about these two guys in an apartment for one full page and then it goes back and it almost looked like a misprint. If you hadn't read the previous six issues of Green Lantern, you wouldn't know this was part of the story, but it almost looked like they accidentally printed two pages of a different comic inside of Green Lantern and that one panel that one panel throws you off enough. Yeah, I I did. I stopped to think about what they did in that one panel for too long of a time. But once I got into the book, it didn't affect me very much. I had forgotten about it and moved on. But that was a very poor choice on that panel. Would you say that this is a good enough concept that in different hands, it might turn out to be something better? Yeah. And like, it still may be an okay book, but I just didn't, the hook on the last page throws it all off for me. It seems like that's unnecessary considering you've got a pretty good idea for a book there. The hook on the last page is going to set into a chain of events that gets him out of his current problems and, you know, gets him the love of his life and and resolves the situation. That much is predictable. I just had not seen the fake psychic who's actually a real psychic take this particular angle on the story before reverse exorcisms. And I I think that's a, I complain a lot on here about hackney ideas. Like everybody was doing the barbarian books and everybody was doing the sword and fantasy books. And so when something comes along and I have not seen that concept before, I at least want to give it a shot. Yeah. Well, that moves us into DC comics. Let's just start off with Joker and Harley, Criminal Sanity Number 2. Writer Cami Garcia, artist Miko Suyan, and Mike Mayhew. Eh, how many Joker and Harley books do we have out? This is non-continuity, oh. but... Now, sort of okay with issue one, I think, but issue, God, this is just... Issue two was asking... Hell? I don't even know what the hell this book is. Issue two was asking a lot of the reader. We've got a number of Joker and Harley books out there. Some of them are just called Harley, but they're actually Joker and Harley. The many different interpretations of these two are beginning to wear really thin on me. Maybe two Joker Harley books a year, but 15 of them at the same time is a bit much. While featuring Harley Quinn in her own ongoing and wherever else we can slap her, plus we've got a number of Joker events coming up this year. This is just a little bit too much, and I think issue number two has weaned me off Joker Harley criminal sanity. I just completely lost interest while reading this book and decided that I don't necessarily have to pick up number three for the same price. You had the same problem issue one did, where the, the black and white art looks pretty good. Yeah. But when they would go to the color art, it looks... It just looks terrible. I was really big on issue number one. I remember that, but I don't know what happened. I think we just overlapped too much of everything into this one issue. They And it's just not, it just wears on you. Yeah. At some point you just lose interest. And this was the point I lost interest. I gave the writing a two. I gave the art a five overall. A five? I, I still, yeah, I gave it a five. That The black and white stuff is outstanding. Yeah, like, yeah. I agree with that, but the rest, but the color junk is garbage. You go back and forth. I don't know which 
parts. I don't know if Miko did the black and white parts or if Mike did the black and white parts or what. So I just gave the art overall a five. The color art did not bother me or did not make me want to detract from my overall art score, but it was the black and white art that just really, really hit home with me. I gave the dynamic a one. So my score on this was actually 2.7. Yeah, I gave like the writing a two, the art of two and the dynamic two, I guess. So you gave it a solid two. And yeah, because I'd like to give it a higher score on the art, but God, that color art's it's so different and jarring in a bad way. Yeah. And it just takes away completely from the book. Well, I think between what both of us are saying, given the art and the writing on it, is that we're now both off of this book. We've yeah, just pretty it, yeah. much. For the price they're asking for it and everything else, they're just, yeah, this is too much. And I would love to say, oh, there are better Joker and Harley stories out there. And I'm sure there must be, but dear God, can we scale back on it a bit? We're going to save the best for last on DC. Let's talk a little bit about Lois Lane number seven, writer Greg Rucka and artist Mike Perkins on it. We've both been back and forth on this book. I like an issue and then I really don't like it. And then I like an issue. But I think this issue has finally made up my mind on it. What about you? Did the plot even move forward? No, no. But we know that Renee Montoya is there first and foremost to get laid to the point that I actually was getting mad at Bendis while reading this book. And Bendis has nothing to do with this book. This is Greg Rucka. I really, honest to God, thought I was reading a Bendis book. I came off of action and I went to detective, which was a good thing to do. And then I went to Lois Lane and reading Lois Lane. Yeah, I thought Bendis was writing it. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. No, this is Rucka. And then I went back to check. And yes, it is Rucka. Renee Montoya has suddenly gone way out of character on this. Quite honestly, if she's going to act like this, we need to yank the mantle of the question away from her because this is not how the question, this is not how her character has acted in the past or anything else. And this is not worthy of the title or mantle of the question. No way did the world's greatest reporter and the question not figure out that the may or suspect that that maid bugged the room. Yeah, and that was my thing, too, was based on, you know, Lois knowing people are out to get her, and the fact that her normal maid just disappeared, and this other maid just shows up, organizes everything. Her and the question both don't even do anything about it. It's just whatever. And this may be some gotcha heist-type plot line where, ah, they knew it all along. But I really don't think it is, and this really just devalues both Lois and Renee Montoya as characters. And it may even be a bit insulting to women because Renoia, uh, Renoia, (laughs) Renee Montoya was really much more interested in hitting on the maid than being concerned with what was going on. Given that the book starts off with her attacking a member of the paparazzi who's getting pictures of Lois kissing Superman because I guess it's interesting to try to make Lois look like she's cheating on Clark with super. I don't. How would Superman not know that person's just across the way at the building? How do, yeah. How does Superman not hear the click clack of the tripod being set up, which was established? 
surely he's he's been his career listening for that stuff. Not only that, but the guy's talking to himself, yeah. wanting the money shot. Super, yeah. Okay, well, Superman's not listening to everybody constantly, granted, but I'm fairly certain he's listening to a one-block radius while he's hovering there. He's no stranger to this rodeo. I, I just did not like this. I'm I'm off Lois Lane now. I'm going to keep reading it. I just don't. I don't even remember what the hell the plot was. What I mean by saying I'm off Lois Lane is yes, we'll keep reading it and we'll report back on it. But yeah, there wasn't much of a plot other than that maid and then the reveal of the maid and Montoya hitting on the maid. This big thing about Superman's identity, but because we've got the timeline sequence all messed up, Lois Lane doesn't know what's going on in action comics or in Superman or apparently in leviathan which if i never hear the name leviathan again i'm good with it by the way writing on this i love greg rucka but i gave the writing a two the art of three the dynamic a two my score was 2.3 how about you i gave writing like a one because everyone's acting real stupid art of three and dynamic two he's written a really good renee montoya in this up to this point and it's like suddenly he forgot who this character was yeah and i don't because i've read i followed renee montoya from when she was on Batman the Animated Series and then was put into the comic books and worked her way up from there. And this is not... What I was reading read more like Jessica Jones after being slipped MDMA or something, not Renee Montoya at all. I don't think the female character should be treated like this. I don't think any character should be treated like this. I agree, but for some reason, (laughs) it's really hitting home with me that it's Lois's book and her co-star in it is Montoya. And I'm, well, I'm not a big Lois fan. I am a fan of Renee Montoya. And this is kind of, it's kind of insulting. Action Comics, number 1018. Speaking of insults, Brian Michael Bendis, John Romita, and Klaus Jansen. Man, I refuse to believe that John Romita did anything but two pages in this book. Is Bendis senile or something? Even like his own books don't even line up from issue to issue. Okay, well, here's a couple of my, here's my question directly to you, because you are all over the Morrison stuff, and I've been reading Green Lantern and now Black Stars, but here's my question to you. How the hell does the Daily Planet know about the Green Lanterns if the Black Stars rewrote history? I don't know. How does, how, how does Leviathan team up with the Legion of Doom when all that but, crap in Justice League is going on? I can answer that for you. Leviathan is there because Bendis created Leviathan, and Leviathan is going to show up in every Brian Michael Bendis book and may retroactively show up in Marvel Comics' Max line in Alias somehow if Bendis has a say about it. None of it makes sense. No, it doesn't. But tell me, the Black Stars, I'm right on this. The Black Stars rewrote history, right? Yeah, but they're about to rewrite it again at the end of the next issue. So Okay, but that's fine. But the Daily Planet is talking positively about the Black Stars and acknowledging that they replaced the Green Lanterns. The Daily Planet wouldn't know what a Green Lantern was if they re... I don't. I, I'm Who sorry. even knows? What that whole text situation was where you see the tweets from the Daily Planet and various other entities around Metropolis, was a poor attempt to put events in sequence from Action Comics, Justice League, Black Stars. Black Stars doesn't have to be in sequence. Everybody should just leave Morrison alone, and if Morrison wants a crossover, just say, yes, Mr. Morrison, what can I do for you? But there's not a problem with the Black Stars or the Green Lantern Corps with Morrison writing it. Everybody just needs to leave that alone and go about their business. 
but they're trying to put everything in sequence like City of Bane and Alfred's death is mentioned. A bunch of things that we don't even... All this did, all them doing by allowing Bendis to put these in any sort of a sequence here is just causing more questions and continuity problems. And he needs to back off it. They need to stop worrying about... Damn it, they had Doomsday Clock just two weeks ago. Why can't we just say, okay, Doomsday Clock has happened, and now all the other storylines are over? Instead, we get Apex Lex, the Legion of Doom, and somehow Leviathan, who's now here to take it out on Superman. This issue of action takes place prior to Clark revealing his identity in Superman. It does. And the this one issue is so disjointed, it's not funny. And they even try a little thing in there to make Jimmy Olsen funny, I guess, in deference to the Jimmy Olsen book. No, Bendis, back up. Just just back up, back off. <laughs> yeah. Fraction is a better writer. Just back away from Olsen. If you got to have him there, hell, get somebody else, Bendis. Leave Olsen alone right now. This hurt. This really did. I'm a Superman fan. You're a Superman fan. This needs to stop. It's just a sad state of affairs is what it is. I gave the whole book a score of one. Look, there's two pages in it that looks like John Romita actually drew them. The rest of them, the cover, Superman's ear is so weird on this cover. It's not funny. And you can't tell if Superman's costume is supposed to be skin tight or baggy. You can pass on action comics for a while. I gave it a one across the board. Writing, art, dynamic, everything. That's a fair score. Boy, Jeff Johns needs to come down from whatever mountain he's on and uh, lay down a few edicts here about what can and cannot. Jeff Johns needs to go Hickman on their ass at DC. Don't you think? He he has multiple times, probably. That somebody somewhere needs to say the same thing that they did to Hickman, you know, by the divine authority vested in Marvel Comics, Hickman whatever you say with X-Men goes. Yeah. Yeah. They need to do the same thing to John's and let him get a few of these things straight. It's not all bad out there. DC comics namesake came out this week. Detective number 1018 writer, Peter J. Tomasi artist, Scott Godlewski loved it, loved it, loved it. How about you? I liked it. It was real good. It's just a good, solid Batman story. It is. Tomasi's done a bang-up job with Detective. I'm looking forward to the next issue. It's weird. It's out there, but it's reminiscent of the classic Batman stories at the same time where you don't know exactly what's going on and puts Batman a little bit out of his element. But the nice things in it is there is this wonderful diversification between Bruce Wayne and Batman dealing with their dichotomy in this without alfred yes it looks as for the time being that alfred's death from the king batman book is standing but that's because the events in doomsday clock is not caught up with everything else because alfred is clearly alive and well in doomsday clock this was still a nice thing to see like bruce having to deal with the dogs batman having to do his own research and sitting at the bat desk out of the batman costume completely and talking to bullock over the phone and i love the give and take between him and bullock yeah, well, the Hawkman line was great. The the Bullock stuff I really enjoyed. And I like the character of Bullock, so it's always good when they when they use him well in these books. Oh yeah, he's really solid. He's much more interesting to watch interact with Batman because at his core, he fundamentally does not like Batman, but he's also resigned to what the hell can I do? 
He's like, yeah, I guess we need Batman. We can't, we can't do it without him. So yeah, yeah. There's, you know, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. So we may as well. The whole interaction with Batman and the police, and Batman and Bullock, the Bruce Wayne scenes, they were great. Peter J. Tomasi's really good on this. I gave the writing a four. I gave the art a five. The art was really, really <laughs> on fleek. The art was <laughs> really well done in this, and the dynamic I gave a four. My score was four point five on this book. I gave the writing a five, the art a five, and the dynamic a four. Just a great, solid Batman comic. Yes, it is. And it actually seems to be recognizing some of continuity in proper order. Somehow or another. (laughs) We still don't know how or when the events in Justice League occur, but aside from that, everything seems to be in order in Detective Comics. And now we move on to the House of Ideas, Marvel Comics. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, now we started this off by saying right away, don't buy incoming for $10. If you have already, we're sorry we didn't get to you before this. That's just an advertisement, and there's nothing that happens in that book that you're not going to see in the other books. Also, though, last week at Christmas, they did release another book, Doctor Strange, number one, by a newcomer to the comic world, Mark Wade, is it? And art by Kev Walker in it. (laughs) I thought it was a great issue one. I mean, I mean, it's just a continuation of his Doctor Strange run. It just ended, so. Yeah, but they're marking, it's it's Doctor Strange, I think, Surgeon Supreme. Yeah. And it's marking the the end of his run where Doctor Strange has the had made a, he didn't make a deal with the demon, but he used magic that comes with a price. Yeah. And you know this is going to be a horrific tragedy. As we move on down the line, Mark Wade has a great take on Doctor Strange. I love the otherworldly parasites causing and feeding off disease and sickness in the hospital that only Doctor Strange can see. That was very appropriate. I thought that was very well done. I'm sure that idea has been used somewhere else in some other format, but this this first time I recall seeing it. Yeah. The, yeah it's a good book. Although it's probably one of the better Marvel books to come out this week or Last week, too, I guess. Last week, this week. Well, yeah, the the two weeks are running into each other. We skipped last week, except for the Doomsday special. He also puts in a much more interesting take on an older two-dimensional villain in the book. We won't give away the villain, but he upgrades the villain. And for the first time in a long time, this villain looks like a problem. When this bad guy first showed up in Thor low many, 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 many years ago. I never took him seriously then, but for some reason he does come off as very menacing in this. And again, you know the whole thing is headed towards something majorly tragic for Strange and the use of his hands. You just don't know when it's going to hit because he's got a brand new title. (laughs) So what was your breakdown on it? Uh, I gave the writing a five, the art of four, dynamic four. Okay, we're pretty much both there, except I gave the writing a four, the art of four, and the dynamic a five. So my score was 4.5, and your score is 4.5, but you know you went higher on the writing than I did. And it's not that, it's just that the bar sits higher for weight than it does, say, somebody that is just now writing their first comic. And Wade's on his game on this. The dynamic, I think, deserves a five because this is a fresh new take on Doctor Strange that Wade's leading the way on. You're talking about an individual that's brought us Kingdom Come. Oh, God, the best Captain America run out there. And God knows how many other titles. So that's why I went four on him. 
Not that you should change your score. You shouldn't. Doctor Strange number one is worth your money. If you're not a Doctor Strange fan, this is your opportunity to become a Doctor Strange fan because something tells me it's not ever going to get any better than this for Doctor Strange in the comics. Probably Short not, of, at least not for a good long while. This is a very good take on him. Hawkeye Freefall number one by Matthew Rosenberg and Otto Schmidt on art. This is okay. I mean, it's pretty good. I guess Hawkeye versus the Hood story and with someone else running around as Ronan. But it is, it is okay first issue. Yeah, it was intriguing. It draws you into it. I thought it was a fun street-level book. Yeah. It reestablishes Hawkeye. You go right into it. You don't necessarily have to know anything about Hawkeye beyond the movies or anything to really enjoy this book. I thought the writing was light and funny. I almost felt as though Falcon and Winter Soldier who guest star in the book, did not take him as seriously as maybe they should. But for some reason, this works. It worked in this book. I don't want to see Hawkeye become Blue Beetle, Ted Cord. I love Ted Cord, Blue Beetle, but he became the butt of too many jokes. Yeah. I don't want that for Hawkeye. But this book was really quite good. I gave the writing a four, the art a four, the dynamic a three, because it's nothing too terribly original, but it's... It's good. Score 3.7 for me. Yeah, I give the writing a four and art dynamic three. Okay, good. Okay, the art, uh, let's see, the writing a four and the art and dynamic a three. So you're just a little bit below me. You're like a 3.5, okay? Yeah. You want to read a Hawkeye book, you can pick it up and try it. You'll probably like it. <laughs> Rather than pay $10 for that advertisement, use $4 and pick up Hawkeye Freefall. You'll enjoy it more. Yep. Punisher Soviet number three by Garth Ennis and artist art by Jason Burroughs. Man, you wonder what people did to Garth Ennis in his childhood, don't you? I don't know. It's pretty messed up. My notes on it say disturbing, but true to life account. And what I mean by that is while this actual incident didn't happen, while the characters in this book are fictional, he is basing it on true to life accounts of Soviet Afghani interactions during the era of the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. Yeah. You read this, and it's Garth Ennis, so it's violent, and it's stuff that's going to keep you, it's stuff that's going to bother you, but that doesn't mean it's not real. It's well-written, and sometimes it's too much. So, Garth doesn't pull any punches with this, nor does he with anything else. And there's over-the-top Garth stuff, which is just utterly, almost comedically ridiculous, like... What was that? Crossed? Yeah, that crossed looks pretty, pretty stupid. It was obscenely violent in Crossed, but so much so that it just stretches credulity, and Garth knew what he was doing in that, because that's a different type of book. Garth bases his Punisher in a very real world, as real as he can make it. These accounts, yeah, you can you can go out there online and find accounts like this concerning the Soviet-Afghani uh, war. I got to tell you, it's a good book. It's a great Punisher book. Garth Ennis knows what he's doing with that character. I oftentimes think that the Punisher should only be used by Garth Ennis outside of the Marvel Universe and not try to mix him in with the other heroes and stuff because he just works better that way. The issue with Punisher, yeah, it's much worse for the Punisher than it is, let's say, what Frank Miller did to Batman is that when people come on the Punisher, they want to do that version of Punisher. Yeah. 
Uh, now, Rick Remender didn't. Rick Remender had a pretty goofy run on Punisher that I like. But for the most part, right, other writers try to do Guinness's version of Punisher. They just, even if it's an okay book, it just makes you want to read Guinness's Punisher. Yeah, know? that's exactly right. Look, it's a disturbing book, and it contains scenes of war in there that are very violent. I gave it a five across the board because when Garth Ennis is good, he's really good. Punisher Soviet's been fantastic. Yeah. And I, and I give this issue five across the board, but it's not necessarily a book that you can, that I would like recommend, be like, hey, pick this up, because it just may be too much for some people. Yeah, it really like, should. It, it, may just, it may just be like, not, not necessarily too much, but it just may not be their cup of tea. It's something that I personally would, <laughs> my dentist, Dr. Carter, <laughs> it's, if he came up to me at the store and he said, what should I read? You know, what new book can I pick up to read? I wouldn't automatically run over there and grab the Punisher by Garth Ennis for him, Punisher Soviet and shove it in front of him. I would do a little back and forth. It's gritty. It's too realistic, but it's Garth Ennis and it's a good book. So yeah. I give it a five across the board. Albert gives it a five across the board. If you're predisposed toward Punisher Garth Ennis, you're going to love this book. It's it's turning out to be one of his better Punisher stories. And that's saying a lot. All right. Anything to add? What did you give it across the board? Or what did you, what was your breakdown on it? I said fives. Oh, so we both gave it fives. Okay. All righty. I am going to take this opportunity while we are not reviewing Dr. Doom's comic book written by What's-His-Face. Do not buy it. Stay away from it. Mark Wade or somebody will eventually come along and recant this and knock it out of the way where it never happened. I, I just want to make an extra effort to make sure that you don't spend your hard-earned money on this current Dr. Doom book. Did you have anything to add to that, Albert? No, I didn't even read it. I just skipped over it. Don't waste your money. Not going to be continuity long. I don't even think it's continuity now. All right, Thor number one. The long-awaited, (laughs) much-touted Thor number one by writer Donnie Cates and artist Nick Klein on it. Man, he starts with both feet on the ground. I mean, he, he knocks it out of the park. Yeah, I thought it was a grand epic start to the post-Aaron era of Thor. Say that three times fast. Post-Aaron era. <laughs> yeah, I was a little iffy because he's been sort of wishy-washy on Venom a little yep. bit recently. But just Thor was really good. You don't see where it's going. You think you know the story when you pick up issue number one. Hey, all right, here we go. Now Thor's king. Now it ain't that at all. I mean, that's a very no. minor part of it. Kate's feels very suited to epic and this first issue is exactly that it's epic he does not pull his punches with thor and this is somebody needs to do this with superman too you need to write superman level stories for superman you need to write thor level stories for thor this is a thor level story so without giving anything away without going into the details it starts off thor is now king of asgard and wackiness ensues but cosmic epic level solid wackiness if i spoil it too much galactus pretty much crash crash lands on asgard yeah yeah and the heralds show up and are like hey what do we got to do something about this and it sort of goes from there i'm on board this is going to be a fun ride riding a five kate's knocked it out of the park i gave the art a three there's a couple of things in the art that was bothering me about it the dynamic of five the overall score 4.5 this is well worth your money yeah, I gave the writing a five, the art of four, and dynamic a five. 
So you ranked it even higher. But yeah, yeah, this is a buy. Go out and get Thor number one, Donnie Cates. It's not what you think it is. Kind of has the feeling to it that you're going to want to be on the ground floor of this. You're going to want this number one issue. So Thor number one by Donnie Cates. All right. Two X books this week. Apparently Marauders is now coming out weekly. Is that correct? Is it? No, it ain't weekly. Maybe bi-weekly or something. It's, I mean, it's we're coming being, out pretty fast. Yeah, we're being hit hard. Apparently, they've got to move the Marauders storyline quick. It's not suffering from that at all, but Marauders number five under the Hickman X-Men books, writer Jerry Dugan and artist Matteo Lolly on it, love that Iceman and Storm are as concerned for Kitty as Kitty is yeah. about not being able to enter into Krakoa. Love that aspect. Well, they also bring up the fact that, like, if Kitty dies, can they resurrect her? You know? Like, how does that work? Yeah, these are big questions here. And why is Kitty not allowed on the island? Why does Krakoa not permit her in there? Is there some underlying concern here that if... Is there something going on in Krakoa that Kitty is specially equipped for figuring out? is my concern. It's not what has Kitty done or why has Kitty not as I, I wonder if it's the aspect that when Kitty, not transparent, what's her, what's her power? What, what she phases. Uh, she phases. Yeah, when she phases, if Krakoa cannot keep track of her, then maybe that, that's it. That could be it. It could be something along those lines. This was an interesting discussion she had with Emma also. This was reminiscent. Your People who listen to the podcast and know me know that X-Men is why I collected comics back when I was a kid. And the conversation with Emma strikes me as an adult like one of the conversations that Claremont would write between, say, Kitty and Storm that had a lot of double meaning going on. Yeah. Kitty has always disliked, had a strong dislike for Emma, but we're watching the two of them slowly come together and there's an angle that's being played here. Yeah, I, I can see Emma's interest in putting Kitty as her red queen. Yeah. Uh, pointing her to that chair. I can I can easily see Emma's interest in that. I understand why Kitty would take that. But now Kitty and Emma seem to be, there's a closeness there that I didn't expect. But also Emma has that great line about, I'm as just as scared of dying as you are. I mean, what if they resurrect me and I come back with my old nose? Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good line. <laughs> Long loved the character of Emma Frost when she's done well. And of course, I'm a big Kitty Pride fan, too. The book is just a good read. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. Jerry Dugan's knocking it out of the park with it. I gave it a four across the board. Writing, art, and dynamic. It's well worth it. I'm all on board on this. Plus, I really love Kitty's new outfit. <laughs> That's pretty much my score, too. Compared to some of the more serious X-Men books, it's the lighter of it side of that but but it's one of the it's probably one of the better books yeah it really is it it does it has a lot of the classic x-men feel to it there's a lot more going on that we're not aware of yet this book lets you know that repeatedly yeah before we get to our big finale here we've got a new star wars number one that, that has come out written by charles soul and artist jesus saez This Star Wars, the reason they started the renumeration, and I'm one of these people that don't care to have a title stopped and then start over again at number one, but I'm sympathetic toward it. They finished out the old Star Wars arc with the Rebels arriving on Hoth. Now the events in Empire Strikes Back has taken place, and this new issue of Star Wars number one takes place immediately 
not after the end of Empire. It actually takes place in between the escape from Bespin and the final scene of Empire Strikes Back. Did you catch that? You know, the no. final the final scene is Luke getting his new hand. Oh, that's right. He doesn't and, have his hand yet. No, he doesn't. He hasn't got off the Millennium Falcon yet. I thought that was a wonderful little angle that we've we've got this little adventure going in between shots, between when the Falcon left Bespin before we get the uh, scene of the Falcon flying off with Lando and Chewie. What was your take on it? Because you're you're giving take on Star Wars a lot. Yeah, I, I actually really liked it. It'll be interesting to see how long they can stretch what happened between Empire and Jedi. Because, I mean, you don't have Han. Yeah. I mean, Luke doesn't go back to Dagobah. He, will, he won't get a lightsaber for a while. It's really interesting to see how, how long they can stretch it. Oh, they can stretch it indefinitely. Like this one little storyline here, you could easily take up 12 issues with this one little incident that has started in this book. When you write comic books, you're a master of their timeline, and a lot of people forget this, but you can take a situation and plot it out, a situation that lasts 48 hours. If you know what you're doing without padding it, make it into 12 to 15 issues, because there's a lot of crap that can happen in in 48 hours. Yeah. I'm all aboard on this. I, I really like Charles Soule on it. He takes you in a direction you're not expecting. Writing was a five. The art was a four. The dynamic was a four. Star Wars number one, 4.5 with me. Yeah, I'd give that score too. I really like the way uh, they wrote Luke in this issue too. So Yeah, they did it real well. They're they're actually dealing with the ramifications of of this giant revelation that Vader has just laid on him and going into the character. And then he just got his hand cut off, so it's gonna. I mean, it's. I mean, yeah, he he gets a robot hand, but that's you know. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, he got his hand cut off. Yeah, it's still not his hand by his dad, no less. Yeah, he's coming to terms with all that. We're going to end this week's reviews with X Men number four. Yep. Jonathan Hickman is writer. Linnell Francis Yu is the artist. Wow, Hicksman <laughs> is just powerful. This is a real-ass X-Men comic right here. In ways that you'd never expect. You still get the feeling that he's just doing the old Claremont stories? Because I don't get that feeling at all. No, it's, he's, he's really trying to you know do, do something new and different with them. At the same time, recognizing the heritage and history of all of them. And he does that phenomenally well. And he also made it a point to have Xavier remove the Cerebro helmet. Yeah. I thought that was good. I'm, I'm glad we saw that. There still could be something wonky going on there, but he removed the helmet. So I, I feel better about that. Magneto quoted Huxley. And not did. only did... Yeah. I mean, oh dear Lord. Some of you may remember a podcast a while back where I went on a rant about a writer forcing a piece of art into a comic book that was just so lousily done, just a hackneyed job at trying to make you think that he was writing with depth and character. My friends, Jonathan Hickman knows what adding layers to a book is about. And the quote from Huxley is that Magneto, he Magneto paraphrases the quote, but the actual quote comes from Aladdis Huxley's book, The Island, and it goes like this, armaments, universal debt, and planned obsolescence. Those are the three pillars of Western prosperity. If war, waste, and moneylenders were abolished, you'd collapse. And while you people are overconsuming, the rest of the world sinks more and more deeply into chronic disaster. 
point at which Magneto delivers this and the way in which Magneto delivers this and the fact that Magneto is quoting from the book The Island, not just from Huxley, but from that particular book. I mean, Hickman just knocks it out of the park. That's just one of the impressive things about this book. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, it's just a great comic. It is. It's a great comic but, because... But, he, but going back to Professor X being the wealthiest person in the world, yeah. he, he is viewing humans the same way. I will say, oh, we'll paint with a very broad stroke. He, he views humans no differently than the way, you know, the wealthy views poor people, as that they're just a, a commodity and a resource and they'll just fall in line because they've got no choice but to fall in line. That's the platform overall. Yeah. I actually thought Xavier's little speech was more inspirational. I thought that Magneto and Apocalypse, definitely Apocalypse, embodied more of the attitude that you're describing than did Xavier. Xavier actually made the statement, I still believe in you. He still has high hopes. I don't think he really does. He, he says he does, but he sees Homo sapiens as sort of like insects. They're way, way beneath him. This could go into dangerous territory if that's where Hickman's going with it. If it is, it is. This is just a great book. If you're not reading X-Men, you need to read X-Men. You need to go out there and pick up the trade paperbacks of House of X and Powers of X or the hardcover. I think only the hardcover's out currently. And the reprints of X-Men 1, 2, and 3. Hickman's knocking it out of the park. But Hicksman, <laughs> Hicksman, you, you notice that? That's what they're calling it, Hicksman, H-I-X-Men, mm-hmm. is, uh, is Marvel's. You know, Immortal Hulk keeps coming up, but I think X-Men's edging Immortal Hulk out with me, uh, with this issue. It seems, I don't know. It seems like it, it could do it with this issue. I don't know. It's just, there's, I mean, there's other things going on in this. I mean, going back to just talk about the issue itself, I mean, did they really think there wasn't going to be assault teams waiting for them? Well, I think they were hopeful that there may not be in that context. Clearly, Wakanda was not aware of it, and I don't think uh, India was not aware of it. But America and China and Japan seem to be very aware of it. I mean, it seems like Wakanda is the only nation of of the big fictional ones that they're doing right now. It's just sort of a thing. Krakoa is an island, an island surrounded by water on all sides. And who rules that water but Namor? So at um, some point in time, Namor's going to be like, you know, these oceans are mine. Don't my, do anything. My friend Victor and I would like to have a word with you. Yeah, and Doom's not going to tolerate any of it at all. Needless to say, I gave this issue fives across the board. Hickman, in the tradition of the intent of the original X-Men, you've heard, everybody's heard this many times, Xavier was a stand-in for Martin Luther King, and Magneto was a stand-in for Malcolm X. But along the lines of dealing with societal issues, Jonathan Hickman has really taken this to heart, and this has become a class, I don't want to say warfare, but an issue with the different classes in society. Yeah. Both acknowledged and not acknowledged at all. Hickman's doing a wonderful job with this, for the most part. I also like that Apocalypse Point Blank just says... You're not worthy to pronounce my other names. I'm Apocalypse. I thought that was very good, and we didn't have any of this, the mutant formerly known as Apocalypse bullcrap that's going on in one of the other books. Must buy, must read, X-Men number four, the X-Men line by Jonathan Hickman. What, you, what was your score? Fives, too? Yeah, it was, uh, it was straight fives. That's yeah. the only thing you could really give this book. It really is. It's a powerful, powerful book. 
we got a number of things coming up, including uh, the interview with Chris Faison. We've been promising I'll get my act together and we'll get together with him in the next couple of weeks. A couple of surprises. And we've got the big Star Wars episode coming out that's going to be an extra long episode and go into details. We're going to talk about our opinions on the film and the Mandalorian, the conclusion of the Mandalorian. And we're going to answer a bunch of questions that we've got stockpiled from listeners here about Rise of Skywalker and Mandalorian. We also have a number of questions coming into the regular podcast. Keep those coming as well. And we're going to get back to them next week. We're just running a little over in this episode. Look, we cannot thank you enough. Our numbers are just getting better and better. And we know it's because of you. So please share us with your little nerdy friends. Even if you have friends that aren't nerds, make them into nerds. Force them to listen to us. Make them join the Church of Albert. We need their tithes. So thank you very much. We We've had a wonderful 2019 and we're looking forward to an even better 2020. Send your questions, your comments, your observations, your opinions, whatever. Send them to KingdomCasts, that's Kingdom, C-A-S-T-S, at gmail.com and KingdomComics at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook as both KingdomCasts and KingdomComics. Stay tuned. We've got some stuff coming down the pike this year. It's going to be a fun ride. So Thank you for a wonderful 2019, and we're looking forward to 2020 with each and every one of you. Albert, you got anything you want to say? I can't think of anything. (laughs) I love how I just have this wonderful announcer's voice, and I just sound so hyped up and happy. And Albert, you got in. Well, you say everything. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Oh, wait, wait, wait. You do have something to say. I think The Rise of Skywalker is the best cinematic achievement humanity could ever have. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I know, man. You you said it. We recorded it. It's on the podcast. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, tell them all good night. And, uh, we'll talk to them next week. Good night, everybody. <laughs> good night. And thank you all. Is it Tinder that's the dating service? I mean, Tinder, Tinder is multiple. Yeah, Tinder is the thing, though, right? There's even some Facebook dating app now. Yeah, okay. I don't care about that. I just, I'm trying to make a bad joke.